Welcome to Montana 3000, Tales of 15 Minutes From Now, read by the author, Sean Gallagher. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts, and see the website for updates on new episodes at montana3000.com. And now, your host, Sean Gallagher. Fast Arrived the Crash For all the love we showed it, all the materiality we gave it, all the time and energy we invested in talking about it, thinking about it, it's amazing how fast arrived the crash of sport. One day, we were all geared up, tip to tail in our colors, screaming like maniacs for our guys, high-fiving and beer-guzzling from the stands while sharing that electrified air of contest. Then, in the blink of an eye, we were watching the dramatics from afar, cheering half-heartedly from the anticlimactic isolation of our sofas as feats of strength and speed were performed by masked strangers in empty arenas before cardboard cutouts to the sounds of canned applause. We held out hope that we could bring it back after this craziness settles, but the further away we got from how it had been, the harder it proved to steer that ship back to shore. The whole thing was much more delicately balanced than anyone realized. Part of it was that all the carefully crafted drama needed an audience to fuel it. Heroes and villains play best before a live studio audience. But also, the entire enterprise was extremely resource-intensive. Massive amounts of money, huge facilities, giant chunks of airtime and bandwidth undergirded the machine. As time went on, Means dwindled across the board, and priorities started to rejig, and thus Goliath was felled by a sneeze. What never did go away was our collective need for triumphant subjugation, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, etc., and so forth. So we needed a proxy for all that lost pageantry, something to fill the hole left by our human need to compete, to win, and sometimes to lose. A few candidates threw their hat in the ring. First came video gaming, a high-def replication of that which was lost. The visuals were immaculate, the representation of the icons and their movements flawless. But even the best technology couldn't hide that the new behind-the-scenes heroes of the game were at heart, and often in actuality, basement dwellers, quick-thumbed though otherwise unremarkable normals, and there just wasn't enough there to worship. Gambling was the next logical substitute and for a while it thrived, but soon faltered too. Beyond the endurance required to sit at a table for hours on end, there was no real physicality involved, and turns out an element of athleticism was needed to hold everyone's attention. If a chain-smoking 80-year-old could dominate from a motorized wheelchair, that just wasn't sporting enough for the masses. As time drew on and things became increasingly desperate, Even mano-a-mano blood sport enjoyed a temporary renaissance. Dueling swords scratched a few itches. There was the convenient forum offered for the airing of grievances. So long as duels were authorized by the appropriate governing bodies, all was considered fair play. And certainly skill and physical acumen played major roles. Problem was, there was no star power. Either the best ran out of beef to squash, or they ran out of luck. Whatever the case... There were just too many new faces getting run through for rule-bound violence to stay a thing. Though it took a while, eventually this vacuum was filled, 
It came from a familiar but unexpected quarter. Behold, the rise of Carnival. Amazing we didn't gravitate to it sooner, but maybe that's just hindsight talking. Carnival has all the qualities of the surrogate we needed. Heroes, villains, chance, skill, and thrill. Even the food is good. There were a few wrinkles to be ironed out. For one, there wasn't enough sex appeal. Carnies don't generally fan the flame of desire for most people, and we'd come to expect an element of the libidinous in our sport. And the venues were too constricting for a populace that was skittish and reeling from years of contagion, paranoia, and quarantine. Plus, Carnival, while fun to play and laugh along with, was really not a spectator event, in the familiar sense. But these all proved to be solvable problems. As for venue, in the wake of sports demise, the world was sitting on pitch after field after stadium of empty place. Massive edifices and wide-open spaces begging for the return of competitive energy. Plenty of room to set up. Plenty of room to spread out. Regarding sex, it also proved a relatively easy fix. As Carnival gained its grip, so did its audience swell and its reputation as a legitimate concern grow. This widened the boss's window to attract the more attractive. In other words, as Carnival became more popular, Carnies became better looking. The spectator net was a little tougher to crack, but as games and prizes evolved, the crowds waxed and the people watched. Game show fanfare proved a helpful model, as Cupid dolls and goldfish were in time replaced by much shinier gods. It took more than a nice stadium, good looks, and a new car to rise to the top of the watch list, however. Carnival had always been competitive. The best barkers ever brought the biggest crowds. But add money to the mix. Real money. Big money and Carnival became downright cutthroat. As in all high-stakes games, some little fish became big fish, and some big fish became dinner. After a period of skirmish and gain, the Carnival world was winnowed to an oligarchy of five global titans. Western Europe was claimed by the Irish Romani vagabond Laszlo O'Keefe, a man of flexible virtue and iron will, who affirmed himself the unconfirmed offspring of a knife-thrower and a unicyclist, born in the alley of a Rue Saint-Denis absinthe house, quote-unquote, sometime before the war. Begun as a small-time promoter, O'Keefe built his empire one tent at a time, acquiring exhibition after exhibition until his company boasted over 35,000 performers and game captains dotted across Europe and North Africa. Word on the street is, he buried more than a few bodies along the way a self-described pikey-made good, no number of Savile Row suits or Swiss-made watches will ever hide the snake eyes or fast-flowing lilt of this true blue grinder. To the right of Laszlo lies the empire of Eastern European carnival crat Zoya Kruchina. Twenty-five years ago, Zoya inherited a modest circus outfit from her father Yuri, which she then endeavored to build into the most ruthless cadre of Gaffers, duckers, fixers, flatties, didicoys, hawkers, boss hostlers, butchers, menders, and joggernomies in the Northern Hemisphere. Drawing from the Western world's richest traditions of contortion and sleight of hand, Ms. Kruchina's talent pool is legendary, as is her expectation of loyalty. Few of her corps ever leave her for other carnivals, and those that do are not only blackballed by her 40,000-strong zoistas, but hunted as fugitives across the globe. 
though it's rare for a zoista to defect. It's common for those that dare to wake up in a foreign camp with a slit throat. As they say in the cult of Carnival Kruchina, Zoya play for keep. If the western world of Carnival is evenly cleaved between Laszlo and Zoya, the eastern half of this orb is much more blurred and bloodied, for the lines of demarcation here are not nearly as clean or respectfully observed between its rivaled leviathans. In the western east rose the next of the world's five midway masters. His name is Sai Singh. Born eighth of eleven siblings near a trash heap in Kolkata, his departed parents' only bequest unto him was wit, in a state he put to purposeful employment. Sai dug himself from the filth of his inception with a deck of cards, grifting rupees enough as an abstemious street hustler to see the small rickshaw outfit, employing his siblings as drivers. This small rickshaw outfit, in time, grew to become a massive rickshaw outfit, which Sai, in his prescience, parlayed into the ascendant world of Carnival, selling the rickshaws to buy a controlling stake in a near-bankrupt games-and-rides maker in Mumbai. As equipment supplier to Asia's countless festivals, fairs, and bazaars, Sai built his empire from the inside out, starting in India, then spreading east to China and beyond. Always with an eye for a deal, Sai was able to acquire a collection of struggling customers and assemble them into a 25,000-tent-strung juggernaut of amusement that he sibilantly self-styled Sai Sing Circus. A lion among kittens, Sai's rocket ship is fueled by grit, cold blood, and 12 hours of sleep a week. He is an apex predator without threat or rival, but for one. While Sai was clawing his way through the Kolkata muck, Silk-clad Ma Jin was sipping broth from his Amah's jade spoon in a Macau penthouse. The only child of gaming magnet and Beijing darling, Ma Bing, Jin was raised at the knee of Asia's gambling elite and quickly developed a reputation as a math genius and Pai Gao wonderkind. Following the Hong Kong purge and entrenchment, Jin, then a piss-and-vinegar-soaked 20-something, was sent by his father to oversee the construction of a gaming and entertainment district in Kowloon, a party-sanctioned propitiation and social distraction for the peninsula's recently quelled. It was during this period that Jin was introduced to the world of Carnival, its untapped potential, and the rising reign of Sai Singh. Seeing the opportunity, and loving a good fight, Jin secured the support of his father, handed off Hong Kong, then went to work building his army of hustlers and geeks. From there, the story gyres to one of operatic intrigue, murder, and clash between the warring dynasties of Singh and Ma for control of Asia's carnival crown. But for all the wealth and power these lords wield over their respective realms, only one truly sits atop the stack. She needs but a single name to be known. That name is Calliope, and her show of traveling wonders is Ravenwood. Say you head due south from Yellowknife, down through the Dakotas, across the Great Plains and down, down through Omaha, Topeka, Austin, over the Rio Grande and along the Bugle of Mexico, Monterey, Guanajuato, Villahermosa, and beyond. Say you keep going down, down through Tegucigalpa, Managua, San Jose. Keep going. Down, more down. Medellin, Quito. Then wet your boots in the Amazon and keep going down. Rio Branco, La Paz, and Santa Cruz. Now rest your head in Asuncion, 
but don't loiter long, for you still have 4,000 clicks to go before you run out of road and travel the full meridian of Calliope's rule. Her domain is massive, her wealth beyond count, and her sway untold. But for all the scope and gold, Calliope's greatest source of renown is, ironically, her mystery. A New Orleans accent belies her Sao Paulo aspect, but that's as close as anyone has come to pinning her origin. A private jet is her home, and she flies it with loose itinerary, from pole to pole and coast to coast, across her Americas, dropping in on Ravenwood's myriad midways to see how things are going and occasionally be the star of the show. For though her menagerie of enchantment spans a staggering swath, in a pleasant afternoon of Ravenwood wandering, one can place a wager on a racing giraffe, watch the blue whale do tricks, ooh and ah at a one-armed juggler, tossing and hardly ever dropping newborns, cheer along at a dogfight, then snack on balut and snake wine. It's rumor of a calliope appearance that really swells the crowds beyond capacity. Amazement is the only expectation when calliope performs, as every time the delights are different, and her skills, to hear it told, are myriad. Witnesses attest, she can eat glass, move through walls, land on her feet from a ten-story fall, fight bears to the death, see your past, know your future, light fire with a look, freeze water with a word, and kill with a thought. Rumor has it, Calliope is not of this world, and by all appearances, rumor is right. But it's not the hope of glimpsing Calliope's theurgy that brings me this day down Ravenwood's Hall of Merriment, nor the promise of seeing some exotic creature performing acts, nor the sight of a freak exposing God's twisted humor, nor even the chance to wrench my guts in freefall on some impossible ride. I steer the squeals and screams of this reimagined golf course now carnival, this fairway midway, if you will, on a more pedestrian errand. I seek to win a game of chance. Ravenwood offers many ways to try your hand at snatching the pocketbook of Lady Luck. Old standards abound. Cards, coins, cups and balls. But it's the more modern twist that I prefer. Some time back, it was determined that while Dime Pitch and Duck Pond serve well a certain set, there's a portion of the carnival crowd that seeks a higher-stakes buzz. And for these thrill-seekers, new games were needed. They crept slow from the shadows. It wasn't initially known how much tolerance the crowd would have for contests involving true risk. The purses escalated quickly, but that only entertained the horde for so long. What's a million lost to one who can afford to lose it? And anyhow... High rollers had been losing big money since time immemorial. Nothing new there. Things didn't really take off until blood was drawn. After all, the kink for the big stakes crowd has always had more to do with avoiding the loss than relishing the win. Blood but trickled at first. It started with healable wounds, broken noses and jaws, then elevated to scars and limps, knife to cheek, bat to knee before moving on to low-level deformities, expendable digits, i.e. pinkies and toes. Of course, with each escalation of damage, the rewards escalated in lockstep. By the time thumbs were being bartered, the payoffs were matching half a decade's worth of working man's salary, a risk worth taking for many, a risk worth watching for nearly all. But still, there was yet lower for the mine to descend, and yet higher for the stakes to climb. Of course, anyone watching knew where this was headed. You can't pay more than your life. 
What was uncertain wasn't so much the destination as the path to get there. It was the war between Singh and Ma, their arms race of one-upmanship, that engendered the concept of commercializing Russian roulette and putting it in front of a crowd. It was Calliope's ingenuity that had her refashioning the game into the devil's progressive and turning it into the hottest ticket on earth. Here's the bag. Traditional Russian roulette, Singh and Ma's Russian roulette, involves one live round, a six-chambered handgun, a spun cylinder, a quick olive branch offered to whatever god you've forsaken, and a trigger squeezed. For the opportunity to play, punters pay that day's market price for five ounces of gold. For the opportunity to watch, spectators pay the equivalent of one. If the gun goes click instead of bang, the lucky fool makes a thousand times his money. If not, well, someone grab a mop. Carnies have their fun. The devil's progressive flips the script. Rather than buying one round and five empty chambers, here you buy one empty chamber and five rounds. Price to play with Calliope, 25 ounces of gold. Price to watch, 10. For those tracking the math, the odds swap from an 83% chance of click in Russian roulette to an 83% chance of bang at Ravenwood. But every bloody cloud is a silver lining. Where Sing Ma's success pays a paltry thousand times money, Ravenwood pays the pot. Which is to say, every time Calliope's cleanup crew rolls out, the payout rolls up. The pot includes all previously failed players' entry fees, plus 10% of the in-house take. Calliope keeps all pay-per-view and concession revenues. She's not running a charity, after all. At last count, the Ravenwood progressive for suicide roulette the showman sobriquet for the game, was nearing 400 million United States dollars. But still, you ask, what madness drives one to take such unmitigated risk? Surely no promise of any amount of money is worth the near certainty of failure, of death. You'd be surprised. Consider this hypothetical. Imagine you're 48 years old. Imagine you have three kids, precious angels each, eight, ten, and ten. Two girls and a boy. Imagine you're married to a woman who always knows how to make you laugh, always shows you the adventure in life, your shotgun rider, your best friend. So far, so good? Good. Now, imagine a year ago you were caught in the gears of a downsize, and, but for the ante, you've somehow managed to scrape together by virtue of selling all you own and taking out loans you can't repay. You're flat broke. Imagine you've just discovered that inside your skull burrows and squirms an incurable malignancy so insidious that the prospect of a bullet smashed through your brain in front of 5,000 screaming strangers on live television watched by millions more is a scenario preferable to that which lies ahead for you, your wife, your two girls, and a boy. Imagine what it would feel like to leave your wife widowed, your children fatherless, your family penniless. Imagine your options and what you'd choose, hypothetically speaking. The stage is remarkably nondescript, considering the tapestry of drama that's soon to hereupon unfurl. It's really no more than a raised platform, canvas-covered and sawdust-strewn. Think little boxing ring without the ropes. On the stage is a single side table, no chair. This is not a sitting game. 
Upon the table sit a revolver and a box of 50 shells, though just five are needed, and really only one. Raised seating surrounds the dais, giving 360 degrees of audience a direct view. Live stream cameras affix from every angle. The lighting is perfect. I vaguely remember walking to the stage and up its three short steps by way of a narrow aisle that parted a hushed and electrified crowd and had as its trailhead a dingy backstage locker room. It's there I received instructions, the only one that registered being, aim up, you don't want to take anyone with you, you know. You wouldn't let a carny pack your chute, and for similar reasons, in this game you load your own gun. The bullets feel heavy in my hand, portentous. My hands are mercifully steady, and the rounds slide in easily, almost eagerly, like they want to get this over with, too. There's a barker spieling something, but I'm not listening. Whatever she's saying, it has the effect of unstupefying the crowd and frothing them to frenzy. It's almost time to go. She leads them in a rousing countdown. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. I could tell you I'm seized by the terror of having my existence hang by the most slender filament. I could tell you my thoughts have distilled down to the most fundamental memories of love. My child's laugh. My wife's touch. Five. Four. But that would be a lie. In truth, my thoughts are nothing. My mind blank. I just want to know. What's it going to be? Click or bang? Let's find out. Three, two, one. Game time. The end. This has been another episode of Montana 3000. Check out the website for more information and additional stories. Montana3000.com. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Until next time. Happy trails. <laughs>